It is bad news that makes good news good. Bovcast. 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 This is the Bovcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hey, Bob Squad. This is Bobcast. I am Andrew Smith, one of your co-hosts. We've been having a bit of a crazy week, crazy couple of weeks here at Bobcast. Uh, Caleb is a little bit under the weather, and I am in the final push preparing for my candidacy exam uh, coming up here in a couple of weeks. So for this week, to give ourselves a little bit of a break and yet still leave you, our listeners, with some content. We wanted to share something a little different with you. Something that's very important to us here at Bovcast is confessional reform theology, the idea of confessions and catechisms and their role in the life in the church. Well, one way that we see this expressed in our Reformed churches, particularly churches in the Dutch Reformed tradition, is through catechism preaching, one one service each Lord's Day is to be dedicated primarily to the preaching of the scriptures as they are summarized in our confessions, the three forms of unity. I am currently providing pulpit supply for a church in rural southwestern Minnesota. And I wanted to share with you a message that I gave a few weeks back from the catechism so that you can see how we use our confessional theology in the churches. So this is a message called The Law and Our Misery, taken from Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2, and Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope it's a blessing to you. Bobcast. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Also this evening, I would like us to take a look at Lord's Day 2 of our Heidelberg Catechism. It is located on page 202 of the Forms book. Question 3. How do you come to know your misery? Answer. The law of God tells me. Question 4. What does God's law require of us? Answer. Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Question five. Can you live up to all this perfectly? Answer, no, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Let us pray. Father, we come tonight to your word, recognizing that you have given us in your law good things, things that we ought to do, things that we ought to refrain from, and yet we know that all have fallen short. And so we pray that you would help us to understand the depths of our misery so that we might understand the glory of your salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. O congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is good to be with you again today. In the weeks to come, Lord willing, we will be looking at the Heidelberg Catechism. We will be looking at it in sequential Lord's Days. I understand that you recently had a message on Lord's Day 1, not that long ago, so I have decided to uh, jump in and continue from Lord's Day 2. This is a rather heavy and weighty place for us to start because we move past the comfort and the summation of the full gospel that we get in Lord's Day 1 to the particular doctrine of our sin and guilt. Now, it is important for us to do this because it is bad news that makes good news good. If everything were sunshine and rainbows, then sunshine and rainbows become rather mundane and boring and taken for granted. In order to understand the power of the gospel and the magnitude of our redemption in Christ, we have to understand what we are saved from. Think of it this way. There are lots of reasons why one might go to a doctor. You could go to the doctor for a paper cut. You probably wouldn't. You would be wasting your time and money and the doctor's time to go to the doctor for something so simple, but you could. The doctor might even do something for you. 
But you're probably not going to walk away thinking that that doctor saved your life. And you're probably not going to go tell all your friends how great your doctor is because he helped make your paper cut better. Now, you could go to the doctor for something more serious. Maybe you have a bad flu or bad sickness. You might need to. Or maybe you broke your arm or you broke your leg. These are issues where you might need medical intervention. And the doctor could help you. If you have a good experience, then you might be grateful to your doctor. But if you remember the last time I was here, clear back in December, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we found there what kind of spiritual condition we were in before Christ. It wasn't a condition of paper cuts or even flu bugs or broken bones. We were dead. So imagine someone dies, and for some odd reason, instead of going to the morgue, they go to the doctor, and the doctor brings them back to life. That's a big deal. That's something that's going to provoke a response. That's something to write home about. We can look at our salvation in these kinds of terms. If we think that Christ has merely healed us of a paper cut, that we were 99.9% fine and just needed a little help to get the rest of the way, we're not going to think too much about the gospel. It's not going to permeate our hearts and our lives in a meaningful way. Now, if we think Christ fixed a broken arm or a broken leg, something a little more serious, but that fundamentally we were still good, we were still okay, that's still going to work out in some problematic ways. We're still, in many ways, then trusting in ourselves. But if we were dead, if we were able to do nothing, on our way to eternal damnation and destruction in rebellion against God, then the response that being brought back to life is going to produce is going to be quite different. So all of this to say, as a part of understanding our salvation, we need to understand the sin and misery that we have been delivered from. To understand the gospel, we need to understand the law and its demands and how we have fallen short. And this is what we will do tonight and, Lord willing, in weeks to come as we work through the catechism. So tonight we will look at Lord's Day 2 and this text in Romans 3 to plumb the depths of our sin and misery, of our plight without Christ. We do this so that we will understand the great things he has done in the life of joyful thanksgiving that we are called to. And so we will do this tonight in three points. First, we will look at the righteousness of God. We see this in Romans 3, 1 through 8. And then next, we see the rebellion of man in verses 9 through 18. And then finally, we see the results of sin in verses 19 and 20. So first, I want to look at the righteousness of God in Romans 3, 1 through 8. As we read in the service this morning and confessed from our catechism, the law is summarized in these two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. 
And these two commandments themselves are a summary of the two tables of the law, which we know as the Ten Commandments. The first four dealing with how we are to love God, how we are to worship him, and then the last six dealing with how we are to love neighbor, how we are to treat other people and conduct ourselves in this world. Now the law is an outworking of God's attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and so it is an absolute and immovable standard. Now Paul when he comes to Romans chapter 3, has already been treating the law in an extended discourse going all the way back to chapter 1. The thesis statement of the book of Romans, the main point of the book of Romans, was actually what he said back in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul basically does the same thing in Romans that the Catechism does, because the Catechism does roughly follow the structure of the book of Romans. So in Lord's Day 1, the Catechism gives away the ending. In question and answer one, we see the point of everything. We belong to Christ. He has forgiven our sins, delivered us from the bondage of the devil, and therefore we are to live for him. Question and answer two lays it out in terms of this guilt, grace, gratitude, or sin, salvation, service formula. That's the big overview, the summary of the entire thing. And so Paul does similarly in Romans 1, 16 and 17. But what Lord's Day 2 does is establish the law and our guilt under it. And Paul does similar things in these first three chapters of Romans. In the latter part of chapter 1, he lays out the just basis for the wrath of God against sin. He talks about how God has revealed himself in creation in a way that, while it is not sufficient to save, it is at least enough to inform man of the existence of a perfect holy God and man's responsibility to him. Every person knows this, every person sees this, and so they are without excuse. Man, in his fallen sinful state, suppresses this truth of God in unrighteousness. Therefore, God gives him over to all kinds of sin, which is seen at the end of Romans 1. So there you see, for instance, the Bible's strictest condemnation of both male and female homosexuality. It is clearly sinful and clearly a direct result of rebellion against God. But there are also listed there other sins, sins like covetousness, Malice, deceit, gossip, a big enough list of sins to successfully indict everyone. Have you ever coveted? Have you ever desired something that wasn't yours to want? Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever gossiped? Then you too fall under that indictment. We all do. We have all committed sins against nature, sins against conscience, and sin, sins against what God has revealed in the created order to be good. 
But then in Romans 2, Paul proceeds to explain how this condemnation applies to those who explicitly know the law of God, the Jews, those who have his revelation. They know and teach this law, but they do not keep it. And it is with this background in mind that we come to chapter 3, which explores these same issues as Lord's Day 2. So Paul begins there with a question. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? So what does it mean to be one of those people who has received God's special revelation if no one keeps it? What does the law matter if all are condemned with or without it? What do we make of the Jews having received God's oracles, his revelation, but then being unfaithful to it? Well, what Paul is doing is he's answering a couple of objections. Now, first, some would argue that if what Paul is saying is true about the law and about everyone's condemnation with or without the law, that God has proven faithless to Israel because they have rejected him. Now, this is an objection that Paul treats in greater detail in Romans 9 through 11, but for now, it suffices to say that God remains faithful to his promises, even if not all of the line of his people receive them. God did not fail just because some of Israel was unfaithful. Then, just as now, God is faithful to a particular elect covenant people. In fact, the unrighteousness of sinners actually shows the righteousness of God. It shows that God is right to condemn them and to destroy them. Of course, this raises a second objection, which Paul takes up in verses 5 through 8. This is more of an antinomian or anti-law objection. If unrighteousness shows God's righteousness, isn't unrighteousness a good thing? I mean, it seems kind of strange just to say it, just to put it that way. But it's a light form of an argument that Paul took up in greater detail in Romans 6, where he asked the question, shall we sin so that grace may abound? And there he says, may it never be. So here the issue is basically, shall we be unrighteous so that God's righteousness in judgment may abound? The answer to both of these objections is, of course, no. It would be kind of like saying, well, when people get cancer, they pay more money into the healthcare system and they create jobs for doctors and nurses and so forth. And those are good things, so everyone should just get cancer. It's ridiculous. It's an absurd argument. So likewise, the good things that come from sin do not mean that sin is okay. The law is good, and the law should be obeyed. We cannot find fault with it. So the problem is not the law. The problem is people. The problem is us. The problem is that we are inclined by nature to hate God and hate our neighbor. And so that brings us to our second point. Having looked at the righteousness of God, we now turn to the rebellion of man. 
So the law requires us to love God and love neighbor perfectly. 100%. All the time. But we don't. And so, Paul summarizes in verse 9 what he's already set out in chapters 1 and 2. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The Jews, while they received God's special revelation, they're not any better off ultimately when it comes to righteousness under the law. They do not and cannot keep it. Now Paul then proceeds to quote at length from the Old Testament using a lot of different passages, including the one we sang a little bit ago from Psalm 14. We see in these verses the comprehensiveness of sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. He then, from the Old Testament, lays out three categories of sins, three categories we commonly speak of and refer to. Sins of thought, sins of word, and sins of deed. So we see in verses 11 and 12, primarily sins of thought. No one understands. No one seeks God. Sinful man does not seek after God. He cannot. Because of the fall and corruption of sin that has affected the whole human race, natural man cannot and will not seek after God. So what we see here is a corruption that is both passive in the form of not seeking God, ignoring and neglecting this God who has revealed himself to everyone. But then also there's an active element to it, a turning aside, a rebellion against the knowledge of God that is present, a failing to render the obedience that God requires. And no one is exempt. None is righteous. No, not one. Then we see in verses 13 and 14, sins of words. Their throat is an open grave. Sinful speech brings death, not life. It corrupts. It kills. They use their tongues to deceive. So we have here sins of lying, of deception, and they too are condemned. They form part of this basis for God's just judgment. And finally, the venom of asps is under their lips. So this language is used here of poisonous snakes. I don't know if this is a problem around here, but back in Wyoming, we had rattlesnakes. And in summers in college, I would work in weed and pest control. And we would be out on ranches spraying weeds. And one piece of equipment they had to issue to us was snake chaps. They were pieces of cloth-covered wire mesh that we had to wear around our legs. The reason for this is that if we happen to stumble on a rattlesnake, it might bite us. And they're sneaky, and they're quiet. They blend in well with the surrounding. They can look like grass. They can look like rocks. You might not know they were there. And these snakes were poisonous and dangerous. If someone on our crew got bit... We were at least an hour away from town in our very small hospital that might or might not have the right medicine to treat a rattlesnake bite. 
Well, one day I did actually stumble upon one. It didn't bite me, but it got way closer than I wanted to. I didn't see it coming. See, poisonous snakes, they're a subtle and distant threat until they're not. They're sneaky, they're deceptive. Well, this language of the venom of a poisonous snake, it helps us to understand the danger of sins of speech. We can be unexpectedly caught up in them. Think of it this way. You're at work, or you're with your friends and family. You're around the water cooler, or wherever you gather, and suddenly everyone in the room is gossiping. Snuck up on you. Just seemed like a natural transition, just... The way the conversation went, just like a well-camouflaged snake. Never mind, of course, that it was Satan appearing in the form of a serpent that brought sin and death into the whole world. Next we see their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So people do not sin by their words infrequently. Their mouths are full. A big portion of what people say is speaking evil. It's committing these sins of speech. But then finally, in verses 15 through 17, we see the sins of deed. Sins of violence and destruction. Their mouths are full. Oh, sorry. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Sins of killing sins of murder, sins of attempted murder, or of a hateful desire to murder. Or in their paths are ruin and misery. So not just killing, but leaving behind ruin and misery. Sin leaves a trail of destruction behind us. Broken people, broken relationships, broken things, and a broken world. He says, in the way of peace, they have not known. We want this violence, we want this destruction, because we somehow think it benefits us. It's, we somehow think that it is better for us. So in summary, in looking at these categories of sin, we see that all of us are one way or another in rebellion against God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man in this fallen state does not fear God. What lay at the roots of our first parents' desire to sin? Was it about eating a fruit? I mean, that was how they did it, but was it really because, oh, that fruit just looked so good and they had to have it? No, it wasn't about the desire for fruit. It was about the desire to be like God. We do not fear God because our natural inclination our sinful inclination is to want to be God. And sinful man lives accordingly. How much of our life in this day is organized around these ideas of self-actualization, being your best self, living the life that makes you happy, your best life now, or embracing whatever category of identity you want and no one even under penalty of law in certain places, can question the identity you've chosen for yourself. See, fallen sinful people are naturally idolaters or worshipers of self. 
We want what we want. We want it all. We want it now, the way we want it, for us and for no one else. In this, there is no fear of God, only demands for self and rebellion against God. And this is what question five of the Catechism drives home so well. In a way, the answer answers a different question than the one asked. The question asked as it pertains to the law of loving God and loving neighbor is, can you live up to all of this perfectly? Can you score 100% on the test? See, the standard of keeping God's law is perfection. But the answer indicates something far deeper than falling just short of perfection. The answer, no, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. We're not scoring 98 or 99% on the love God, love neighbor test. In our sinful state, we don't even want to take the test. We're not interested. We don't want it. We're hostile to it. Our sin is not a paper cut. Our sin is death. I've noticed in my experience of talking to non-Christians, they generally think that they're pretty good people. They think that they do more good than bad, and that whatever God there might be will accept that, and then whatever heaven there might be, they'll get into because they are generally good. But nothing could be further from the truth. Apart from Christ, we don't even want to do good. We we deceive ourselves into thinking we do, We tell ourselves that whatever we have to tell ourselves so that we can sleep at night. But in our fallen state, naturally we are and desire evil. And this sinful state driven by these sinful desires has consequences, which brings us to our third point. We've looked at the righteousness of God, the rebellion of man. Now we turn to the results of sin which we see in these final two verses of our Romans 3 passage. So we see in verse 19 how the condemnation of the law is undeniable and that we are without excuse. Who is under the law? Every single person. The law is something baked into us, something that is given to us as a part of our creation in the image of God. In the next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll see how a part of our created purpose is that we were created to know and love God. And part of loving God, of course, is to keep his law. But for now, it is sufficient to know that we were created to do so and that every last one of us failed. We have failed in two ways. We failed with Adam's imputed sin and guilt because of his fall, his sin and corruption that is spread to the whole human race. But then we also sit, we also have failed by our own sins. And this is what it means to be under the law. It applies to everyone. Doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, where you were born. What level of biblical revelation was available to you? Every last one of us was under the law. And we are accountable to the law, and we are guilty and condemned 
under the law. Now some find this unjust. They'll object. They'll say, how can I be accountable to a law that I was never told about or never accepted? We don't treat other laws this way. If you were born in this country, you were born subject to the laws of the United States of America. You didn't have a say in it. You were just a baby. But at whatever age, if you start breaking those laws, there's consequences. The same if you were born in the state of Minnesota. There's laws there. Born in this county, there's laws and ordinances there. Or in a town, another set of laws. Well, just as we're born under these laws of geopolitical divisions, we're all born under God's law, and we're all accountable there, too. Now, we also, as we have seen, fail miserably and by our nature don't even want to keep these laws. If we were put on trial in God's court, we would be found guilty and justly condemned. We're accountable to this law and we're guilty under it. We have no room to talk, no position from which to argue our righteousness. As Paul says here in verse 19, every mouth may be stopped in the face of this judgment. And then in verse 20, he gives us the point, the final analysis, if you will. For by works of the law, so by our efforts to do and keep this law and earn our salvation that way, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. Now this justification, it's a legal term. It's that courtroom judgment I mentioned before. To be justified is to be declared innocent. On our own performance of the law, no one will be declared innocent. And Paul concludes, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This side of the fall, the law shows us sin, makes us aware that we are sinners, but it can't do anything to stop us from sinning. This is historically what theologians refer to as the first use of the law. There's three uses, won't get into the other two now. But this first use of the law is the understanding of the law to show us our sin and misery and to point us to the need for our salvation in Christ. By what we have confessed in our catechism and what Paul has shown us here in Romans 3, we become acutely aware that we are all sinners against law, against the law, and without some sort of outside intervention, we are without hope. We come to know our sin and misery because the law tells us, not because the law is bad, but because we are bad. We are rebel sinners against God. And this is the teaching of Lord's Day 2 and of this passage of Romans. We are guilty and sinful under the law, unable to do anything on our own power about this. This law cannot save us. However, I would do you all a disservice if I did not at least mention briefly that there is more to the story. You might recall this morning that we read from Romans 3 later on, verses 21 through 24. But just in case you might not remember or you weren't here, I will read it again. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, we cannot be justified by what we are in Adam and what we are under the law. But Christ became the second Adam. He took on human nature, human flesh. Galatians 4.4 tells us he was born under the law to take up this task of keeping the law in our place. Through his life, but especially at the end, he suffered the penalty, suffered the wrath of God that was due for our sin. So Christian, where you could not and have not, Christ did. And by his works, you are justified. You are in this court of God declared innocent. This is the promise to those who repent of their sins and receive Christ by faith. So what about you? Where do you fit in this text tonight? Are you in this state of Romans 3, 1 through 20, condemned and guilty under the law? Or are you in the state of Romans 3, 21 and after, where Christ's righteousness is your righteousness? Because if you are trying to save yourself on your own works and your own goodness, you are under God's wrath and his just condemnation. It is only in Christ and only by his righteousness that there is forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. If you are in Christ today, remember that it is his righteousness and not your own on which you are justified. Yes, by all means, do good works. Love God and worship him as he requires. Love your neighbor, do good to others, and avoid evil. But do it for the right reasons, with the right heart. Not your self-righteousness, not thinking that you will make yourself better, but do it in thanksgiving for Christ's righteousness, which has been made yours. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day, remember that you are dependent on him, and apart from him, you are able to do nothing. Remember this great gift of justification and salvation you have received, what you have been delivered from, and what Christ had to do so that you might be so delivered. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this confrontation of the law so that we might know our sin and misery, so that we might know the greatness of Christ and the deliverance that we have in him. I pray for those tonight who feel the condemnation of this law, that they would fly to Christ for forgiveness. I pray that we would all love God, love you, and love neighbor as we ought to. And I pray that you would apply this word in our hearts and in our lives this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. 
For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.